Listener supported. WNYC Studios. There's a real potential in art making to really have someone reassess everything that they had thought about a history. What does it mean to seize an opportunity, to be open to possibilities? I'm Helga Davis. Curator, critic, and writer Antoine Sargent sat down to talk with me about the motivation behind his work and the circuitous path that led him to a life in and around art. This is my conversation with Antoine Sargent. Where are you? I'm currently in my office. I'm at Gagosian Gallery on 24th Street. (laughs) Um, Folks are coming in to see the exhibition that just went up at the gallery, um, Social Works. And how are you you feeling both about being back in the gallery and kind of in this new situation for you um, and having people come and see what you're doing? I mean, I feel... Great to be back in the gallery for folks to be able to come. It's been really great to see those different communities show up in the gallery and um, respond to the various artworks and uh, experience them. Because unlike a a completely traditional show at a a gallery, you have people like Linda Good Bryant who built a garden that's um, harvested, you know, uh, once a week and folks get to come in and take food. And you have the Astro Gates, who has turned the house DJ Frankie Knuckles' personal archive into this sonic digital archiving experience. And so you can listen to the music and you can sort of watch the archive be digitized in real time. And so you have all of these moments where the audience gets to sort of complete the exhibition in some ways Mm -hmm. um, through their Mm -hmm. participation. And to sort of walk through the gallery and see that has been a really amazing feeling because very often there's this very sort of formal um, relationship between viewer and artwork where the viewer is supposed to stand there and just look at the work and not sort of interact with the work. And so in this exhibition, we've been able to play with that idea a little bit more Um, and have the viewer and the folks who come to the exhibition experience the work by participating with the work, Mm -hmm. which has just been um, a whole, I think, has allowed for another level of uh, exploration. It's interesting to find you now in this space and that it's a space that you've been occupying, obviously, for a very long time. That's one of exclusivity and So it's a very particular moment in history, I think, for a lot of us who are being asked now to join boards, whose careers are being elevated so that we also become part of these ways that established organizations are trying to look at themselves. So they're looking at themselves and they're asking us to look at them with them sometimes for them. (laughs) Uh, And so there's lots of opportunity there, for sure. And that part of your directive, I know, is to make the landscape more inclusive. Mm -hmm. But I want to know what this moment is for you. And so why now? And how does it feel that it's now? 
You know, I've been wrestling with this question, yes, in the art world, but also in the broader culture where you've seen Black folks who have been doing this work now in this moment um, be asked to take on roles that maybe a few years ago they would have never been asked for, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that they are brilliant, despite the fact that they have the career um, accolades, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, but in this moment, what does it mean? And I've been sort of, you know, thinking about what that might mean if we all stepped into this moment and what can we do in this moment together to leverage mm-hmm. the institutions, the galleries, the museums, the uh, record companies, the movie studios. The schools. The schools. The, the, everywhere. I mean, everywhere. Right. The Mm -hmm. vice presidency. I mean, everywhere. You know, I think for me, that answer has been to try to do the work that I have always done, but to do it in this space um, in a way that puts a premium on this idea of community. Right. Because I think that one of the things that I personally sort of always remind myself about being in a space like this, given the histories in the art world and broader culture of how black artistic production is perceived, valued and honored or dishonored, is to try to not switch up and really sort of bring the concerns that I've been deeply interested in to every room that I walk in. You know, if we're going to be in these sort of worlds, then we need to make them work for us. And so I think it's like it's, you know, balancing those sort of things. I also think that I just personally just sort of as someone who's, you know, for the last decade, been a writer and, you know, organizing exhibitions and, you know, doing all that. I wanted a new challenge. You know, I think that like, Mm. you don't always think about sort of the way that Black artists and curators and writers need to be supported and need to be challenged and need to be elevated in in these ways. And when we open a space like this one, how do you make sure that you're engaging different folks at different parts of the community? And so keeping that intention alive through the way that we are allowed to sort of platform the work and the artists and the conversations around the work is just critically important to me. And that's what I'm trying to do um, here, but also, you know, just more broadly in, in bringing in voices from the community that the artists are from, but also maybe, you know, Rick Lowe, for example, made a, a, a series of works that have to do with Black Wall Street. And one of the ideas I was trying to sort of make happen was have the writer of um, of the HBO show Watchmen, Court Jefferson, be in conversation with Rick, right? Just because yeah. I feel like our sort of arts are too siloed, you know, movie stars talk to movie stars, directors talk to directors, visual artists talk to visual artists. And I think there's a real opportunity to sort of open that up because as you know, you said it's happening across all of our arts. It's not just happening in the the quote unquote art world, but it's happening in theater. It's happening in music. It's happening, you know, and so I I'm sort of interested in, in those intersections. Well, it's, it's good that you bring into the conversation, the word silo, Mm-hmm. Because it's not just artists, clearly, who do this. And I always, 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 Antoine, go back to removing the words in a way and remembering that all of these things are people. So when right. people start talking to me about, well, the government did this or doesn't do this or this group or that group of people, 
whatever it is, the, mm-hmm. the label, the station, <laughs> right. that we're still talking about people. Right. And that in as much as we are able to get back to that, in addition to all the other thinking and all the other ways in which we commune and come into community with mm-hmm. one another, I think there's, there's a chance that things become more equitable. One of the things that I was reading that you'd written was this little missive about the ways to engage with art. And the first thing you say is to walk up to it. Right. To walk up to it and to take it in and to not assume that you know or don't know that there is a right or a wrong, there's a good or a bad, but just that you walk up to it. And that in this way of walking up to it, not only do you look at it, but you can also begin to see. And I'm curious about where first you found yourself looking and what it is that you began to see that kind of put you on this path. I mean, I grew up in Chicago. I think in retrospect, you sort of have these moments of going to the Art Institute on, you know, field trips. And and there are moments like that sort of that shows that, you know, even as a child, it was really important to have this art life. And the schools, my parents, they put a premium on that. But I think the moment that was sort of transformative for me, where I was like, oh, this is what art can do. I was actually in... um, I was in a class, a theory class. I went to Georgetown for undergraduate school. And they had a professor who would do these case studies on artists. And at that point, I'm, you know, 18, 19. And I, you know, I go to museums, but I'm not really sort of having this real engagement. And one of the case studies was Kara Walker. And I didn't know anything about the work. I didn't know anything about the artist. I see the work, you know, and and it's difficult work, like the history is difficult. And I just sort of have this really adverse reaction to the work. And Georgetown's a pretty white place, Uh right? And so (laughs) seeing these images, antebellum images Uh that I've never seen before, right? The Uh history books do not tell it that way. The, you know, I'm just sort of seeing this sort of confront, being confronted with this history through um, this awesome visual language, right? And then I'm expected to sort of have the conversation about that with a room full of peers. And I just lost it. I was yelling and, you know, and sort of left a room and all of this. And I just- But yelling, yelling what? Yelling about what? I was just sort of- in disbelief, I think, at two things. One, that I was like, this is not true. Because for so long, we've been told one sort of story about how slavery happened in this country. And I believed Uh it. And so I think I was trying to confront that, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in that moment. But I was also trying to confront it in a room of white peers it was like a lot of different sort of emotions sort of being confronted with. And I'm, you know, really sort of like upset and in, in just trying to sort of work through my many different sort of set of emotions. In a room that you didn't feel safe in. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I just felt like there was a, you know, an additional burden to try to like explain how I feel, but also 
justify why she was making the work. And it, it was just like this whole sort of just, you know, moment. And I just remember sort of angrily leaving the class before it was over and going from the class to Lao, which is the library, and just checking out every single book that I could find about her. And that became the moment where I was like, oh, this is, there's a real potential in art making to really have someone reassess everything that they had thought about a history. I moved to New York and I sort of fell in with an art, sort of a young art crowd in New York. And, you know, one worked at the Guggenheim doing digital stuff and one was an artist. And I was like, well, I think I could be a writer. And one of the first assignments I got was to interview Kara Walker Mm -hmm. for The New Yorker. And we spent two hours talking about the work. And in my mind, I'm like, this is such a full, I'm 22 or 23 at this time. And I'm like, this is such a full circle moment. I had this like really crazy reaction to the work when I was 19. And now I'm sitting with the artists in front of this incredible, unbelievable, you know, artwork. And, you know, we have the interview and I'm asking all the questions and doing, all my, you know, for my research. And at the very end, um, I tell her this story. I'd say, you know, the reason why, you know, I think I became really interested in her is because I had this experience when I was 19 and I just, you know, thanked her for, for not the experience, but for making work that allowed me to sort of deal with this history that had sort of, that I didn't even, that was, what was so kind of crazy was so unconscious, the way that the history had sort of settled in me mm-hmm. and to be able to sort of explore that was like a was an opportunity that the work allowed for. And I think that whenever I'm writing or whenever I'm sort of doing an exhibition, I'm always trying to sort of create that sort of feeling because it was transformational for me. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. And then before that, when you were little, you talked about your parents a little bit and how they Mm -hmm. privileged art and culture in your home. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have um, I have two brothers and one sister, and I'm the second child. We went to a, a Catholic school in Chicago, and so we were always involved in sports, but we were also involved in opera. Why was this so important to them? I, I sort of say this, and usually folks think that, you know, you to have access to culture, there's this sort of... Um, implicit like wealth and it really wasn't i was born in you know cabrini green housing project so like this is totally just a a school and a parent who knew that there was something about being involved culturally whether that was in sports or in a museum or in the community in some way was important to um the well-being of children and I don't even know how my mother did it, but got us into these summer camps and we would go to summer camp and we would, there would be like arts at the summer camp as well. And so it was, it was a really um, rich sort of cultural life growing up. And 
We were just involved in everything. So you start to learn this thing about yourself and it's encouraged in your home. So those are two big steps Mm -hmm. already. Was there any concern that you do something where you could, you have to make some money, son, you have to take care of yourself? It it was definitely like, go to college. Like that was very Mm. sort of important. All things led to going to college. You're going to college, you're going to college. But it wasn't as if like you needed to be any particular thing. You just needed to go. You just needed to go and And find that information. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then use that information. I definitely remember wanting to be a lawyer. I wanted to be like a constitutional rights professor. And that's why I ended up at Georgetown and studying politics. But then I moved to New York to do Teach for America, still very much on this, I'm going to law school sort of path. But given the cultural sort of background and and me and my friends starting this magazine called The Philosopher, we were in high school and we would like do all the drawings and write all the, the essays and then sell it to like our parents and their friends and people on the street. I mean, I don't know who I was fooling, really. And you were doing all of this in the Cabrini projects? No, so we, the building sort of shut down because the city sort of did this right, plan. Right, they for, implode them or something? Exactly, yeah. And so the okay. city, basically the city had this plan for transformation and moved out all of the residents, essentially, from all public housing across the city. I mean, it was really sort of remarkable. I think at the height, there was almost like 20,000 people living in a Korean Green housing project. So it, it was a real sort of displacement, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up on the north side of Chicago and in Rogers Park, which was like a really sort of totally racially diverse, like, community. Oh. Um, the school I went to, I think it was like 71 languages spoken And so we were just sort of doing it all over the city at that point. We were like, I went to this Catholic school and then they would like play downtown sometimes on the lake or they would play, you know, it was just sort of like, I think it was also one of the great things I think about growing up in Chicago at the time was that it was a big city with a lot of possibility and you could be sort of young and seek out different things because the city just sort of offered it. A lot of it was just like our own sort of motivations, really. And so I remember us raising the money by selling the magazine and them doing concerts. And then John and Leah's parents agreed if we could sort of provide the money for like DAS and all of that through our sort of selling um, of the magazine and stuff, that they would drive us across the country to D.C. for us to sort of see D.C. because we've never been to D.C. And it's like, what parents now? <laughs> like, what, you know, like people are so busy, you know, and so for them to sort of take the time and say, if you have a goal and you meet that goal, we'll help you sort of experience that goal. It's just one of those things that sort of sticks with you when you're thinking about the possibility, just creating your own world. Mm-hmm. This phrase, knowing the possibility, I was walking across 125th Street maybe two weeks ago. I got off a bus and I was walking west. And I don't know if you've been up to Harlem Mm -hmm. lately. We have a very, very, very huge problem Mm -hmm. with um, addiction and folks who are homeless Mm -hmm. and just kind of out on the street. And I walked by this group of men and one of them shouted out, yeah, see, like her. 
she always had possibilities. And I turned around <laughs> and I was so angry. And I said, what do you know about me? And he looked at me and he said, I don't have to know anything about you. I can look at you and know that you've always had possibilities. And then I had to keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> because I couldn't argue with him anymore. And that whatever the things are that are challenges in my life, that there's still some place in me, in my experience, that is open to possibility. Mm -hmm. And that even, even he could see that. No matter, no matter what face I have on or what walk I have or what, mm. right? Where, wherever it is I'm trying to, to be at ease, there's a thing that feels kind of baseline and true. And so part of my question and part of my work is to understand then how we meet and talk to and engage with those of us who don't necessarily feel that way. Thank you for sharing that. It sort of took me back to, you know, having a parent who made a lot possible, then changed extraordinarily what I could make possible, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think about that in relationship to the folks who, neighbors and friends who I grew up with, who just didn't have that same sort of possibility. And what they were able to sort of make possible as a result was not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that has really... Almost, you know, not a why me, but I do always come back to sort of that labor of my, you know, parents and friends and uh, mentors who made things possible for me. And so I always sort of live in that. And I think that because of that, figure out how I could sort of make other possibilities happen for other people and not sort of in a savior sort of way, but just as a member of a community. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think that's why it was important for me to do Teach for America, where, by the way, I taught for four years and I taught kindergartens, five-year-olds, how to read. And I love that job because you could see someone's sort of life open up at that, you know, sort of young age based on the information they can take in themselves and how they can process that information. And so I think that was super important for me. And to do it well, because in some ways I got lucky with the parents and with the mentors and all of that, um, was to sort of try to also extend that to others. You know, one of the things that, that I've been sort of thinking a lot about is like, how do you bring in folks who are not necessarily sort of with some sort of status into the conversation? You know, because I, I really do think if we say that art's for everybody, then how do we make sure that everyone's 
actively engage at every sort of level, right? Because if you're saying, well, only the curator and the artist or only the the academic and the artist or only the celebrity and the artist can have a conversation in the museum space, you know, or in the gallery space, then what you're doing is actually re-inscribing that certain people matters and other people don't matter. And so I'm trying to sort of figure that out. Like, how do we, if we're saying everyone matters, then how do everyone gets to sort of share in in all the platforms. And so that is something that I'm also sort of actively trying to sort of figure out. How do we also engage another group of folks who we're saying that the work is for, but who are not involved in the making, you know? And so so that is another thing that I'm always just even trying to hold myself accountable to, you know, because it's, it's very sort of easy to sort of get at a gallery like this and, you know, like to sort of get go out and get the the best person for, you know, to have the best conversation, quote unquote, <laughs> you know. But I also think about how do you continue to make sure that all experience is being sort of valued, you know, and, and being platformed in diff in these different in different ways, you know. And so that's sort of one of the things that I'm also sort of motivated to keep trying to do. I think part of it, too, has something to do with bringing the stuff to the people where they are. Yes. Because there's there's a little bit, I think, of a presumption that if we put them in, they will come. Some will. Some will, yeah. for sure. And I think yeah. that's true in the theater, in opera, any any kind of situation where now institutions are looking to diversify their their audiences, their level of participation of the people who participate in whatever it is that they do. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a kid, there would be Jazzmobile and they would drive that thing all around Harlem <laughs> and you could just come outside and it would open up and musicians playing real instruments would be somewhere close to where you were. Mm -hmm. And then you could be curious about, not just about music, but what's a drum? What's a bass? What is that? Who are these people and how do they get to do that? They would come to the neighborhood. They would do stuff right where they were for the community that they were a part of. And we would be invited in. And that that's also a a piece of of the puzzle. Yeah, no, I sort of think, what does it mean for us to sort of go into the community, right? In ways that like, is not, you know, not sort of take the community and plant it over here, but actually be in the community. Yeah. And, I, and I've been, you know, I, I, I'm it's very early stages, but talking to one artist in particular about what that might mean to, instead of doing a show in the gallery, how about we do a show in your community? You know, when when folks said, oh, you know, if we make museums free, then more people, more different communities will come, you know. No, more of the same people will come. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what the research has shown, too, that more of the same people will come and they'll come for free, you know. And so, like, I think that is one of the things when we're thinking about institutions, we need to think about the community as an institution, it's just one of the questions or one of the things that I was thinking about sort of in this first show is all of these artists have 
really deep, active community practices. And I think that after all that has happened in the last year, it was really sort of important to start this journey thinking about the various Black communities that raised me. That's a beautiful place to, to end. Thank you, and thank you for the conversation. It's lovely to meet you. And that was my conversation with Antoine Sargent. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes-Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Ndege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. Notes on social works. One, a growing number of Black artists are using their dynamic practices in a myriad of instrumental ways to consider how personal, public, institutional, and psychic space can be generated through artworks rooted equally in history and futurity as a way to explore the liberatory possibilities of spatial empowerment. Three, social sculpture. Five, Black sound has functioned as an important conceptualization of Black space, catch the beat. Six, what is Black social sculpture? Perhaps it has to address slave labor, redlining, white flight, subprime mortgages, gentrification, a history of degradation and undoing. Perhaps it doesn't. Maybe the visions begin in the future. And the builders of that sculpture will lay foundations that are out of this world, undreamed, fabricated fabulations for bricks. A narrative, as the scholar Cynthia Hartman argues, from the nowhere of the ghetto and the nowhere of the utopia. Perhaps we use overlooked spaces of freedom, the black living room, the spice rack, the cookout, the juke joint, the rent party, as the blueprints for liberation sculpture. 10. Kelly Jones. The piece that was at Art on the Beach, does it have a name? David Hammonds. I called it Delta Spirit because it was about the kind of spirit that's in the South. I just love the houses in the South, the way they built them the negritude architecture. I really love to watch the way Black people make things, houses or magazine stands in Harlem, for instance, just the way we use carpentry. Nothing fits, but everything works. The door closes, it keeps things from coming in, but it doesn't have that neatness about it, the way white people put things together. Everything is a 32nd of an inch off. Well, Black Wall Street. 13, Blackness is made and remade in location. 14, a communal space. 
common space, community space. 2500 West Oak. 21. Every year, these four photographs taught us how English was really a type of trick math. Like the naked emperor, you could be a king capable of imagining just one single dream. Or there could be a body, bloody, at your feet, then you could point at the sky. Or you could be a hunched over cotton pick and shame. Or you could swing from a tree by your neck into the frame, Robin Costa Lewis. 25, the shade provides shelter. 26, Black people are constantly in the space of reimagining, searching, landing, moving, returning. 27, the Black body as utopic space. 28, the Black Reconstruction Collective asks three questions. What is the architecture of Black futures? What does it mean to imagine Black Reconstruction today? What is the architecture of reparations? 29, imagine a Black space. What does it feel like? 30, Walter Hood. There were Apollos in every neighborhood. Put another way, all space has the potential to be Black space. 39, what else can art do? Thank you.